Hello and welcome to What China Wants. Uh, my name's Stuart Patterson, and as always, I'm joined by Sam Elson. Hello, Sam. Hello, Stuart. Did you have a good summer? I did. I was in Greece, and I gather you were in Greece too. You've just returned. Yes, I was taking a little break, looking at some ruins and archaeology, and also、uh, looking for any signs of Chinese investment, which I didn't have to go too far. I actually spent a lot of time in Piraeus, the port, which has been signed over to new Chinese owners. Uh, brilliant. Well, look.、Um, in this episode of What China Wants, what I think we'd do is Sam and I are going to sort of round up a little bit about our observations as to what's been going on in China over the course of the last two months while everyone's been on holiday. And with that in mind, I think Sam will kick off with your overview of the the Pelosi visit. So, so Sam, how bad has this been for U.S.-China relations? Well, it's a good question, and I think that the impact is definitely there.、Um, it was very noticeable that China kicked up a huge fuss about the visit before and during, not so much afterwards. But by then, they had made their point, and, and the point is quite simple, which is that they have a domestic audience to show that they refuse to bow down to what they think of as American aggression. Now. The nuance: the fact that Pelosi went there without Biden's approval, the fact that she went there with a mainly domestic audience in mind herself, and the fact that she's got a long history of winding up the the Communist Party. For example, in 1991, when she went to Tiananmen Square and unfurled a banner in commemoration of all the people that had died. In the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, if you want to take the Western view on that, all of those things combined to. Give the the Chinese one single story, which is American aggression as normal, and they are trying to、uh, stop the rise of China. They're trying to interfere in Chinese domestic politics, i.e., with Taiwan. And we, as the Communist Party, will tell America, tell the world that we are not to be trifled with. Hence, the the pushback verbally, diplomatically, and of course militarily, with all the live fire drills that went through. So. It's hard to see how a reaction like that could further American-Chinese、uh, relations and do anything other than than decrease them a bit. But I think what's more important, and this is actually a lesson I wrote about、uh, in the Spectator recently. But the key lesson is for China that America is willing to rock the boat, but at the end of the day, they're not willing to push back themselves. And what I mean by that is, China made a lot of rhetoric. Aggressive rhetoric against America, against Taiwan, and set up live fire drills, which in effect blockaded, or were a dry run for a blockade of Taiwan, and were indeed within Taiwanese territorial waters. But America and the West really didn't push back on that. So yet again, we see China upping the ante, not having any pushback, and taking another bite out of the Taiwanese status quo. Is it a bite out of the status quo, as you put it? Because the status quo is that the United States and, for that matter, all the、uh, Western allies recognise a one China policy, and that the People's Republic of China is the one China. That's how I understand it. And therefore, the status quo is that Taiwan doesn't really have territorial waters. It might be. A fact that Taiwan is sort of self-governing, as it were, at the moment, but isn't the Allied position still supportive of a one-China policy, or has that changed? 
no, we're still theoretically uh, behind a one-China policy. But Beijing has obligations in that regard as well, which is not to send in troops, not to interfere domestically within Taiwan, and to basically keep the status quo of Taiwan as a sort of semi-independent, but not quite independent country uh, or nation just off the shores of mainland China. When I say taking a bite out of the status quo, Beijing is very good at saying that it is America and the West who are trying to change the status quo, whereas actually it's quite clear that it is, it's China that is trying to change things by calling for reunification. And what they did very successfully, in, in my opinion, is to push further along the line towards reunification and using Pelosi's visit as the lever in that. Um, and I think that uh, as America tries to sort of keep the status quo they will find it difficult to do so with China pushing for unification. Something's got to give at some point. And I think this was not very helpful in allowing that, that whatever that something will be, to come a little bit closer into sight. Uh, Sam, we have uh, talked to our clients about reunification and the probability of China making a move to force Taiwan's hand in the near future. Uh, and one of the points that we're keen to Labour is that such a move need not be military, that an economic blockade is a very likely scenario. And you mentioned that in the live fire drills that were a reaction to the Pelosi visit, you know, there was some disruption to shipping, it was fairly minimal. But those drills could be perceived as being a practice for a blockade. Is that how you see the drills? And what sort of form would an economic blockade take, you think? And what might be the catalysts in the near future that might instigate that? Yes, we certainly think it was a, a dry run for a blockade because the live fired boxes, the six of them, surrounded the island. Bear in mind, this is the first time that they have surrounded the island. Live fired drills before now have only been within the Taiwan Strait, and now they're expanding into the east of the island. And those boxes basically relate to the main areas of where the ports are in, in, in Taiwan. You're right. We think that militarily it's a big risk for, for Xi Jinping and the Communist Party to send hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops across when America and Japan, you know, they said that they will fight. Well, Biden said they will fight. The Japanese have said they will fight. In most likelihood, there would be a, a military mobilization and, and things could get out of hand quite quickly. But China's very adept at, at winning without fighting, to use the old phrase. Um, and I think that by doing blockade, they would have their cake and eat it because they would not only force the Americans and the Japanese to be the aggressors because they would have to run the blockade. That would appear very badly in, in, the, in the world's media. But secondly, they would they get control over Taiwan imports and exports, which includes stopping them rearming, but also includes getting control of the chips from Taiwan. And bear in mind that, as everyone surely listening to this podcast knows, Taiwan is the center of global chip production. And Chinese chips would be to what Russian oil and gas is now. In other words, an impediment stopping a full mobilization of Western sanctions, because all China needs to do is turn off the, the chip supply out of Taiwan. And suddenly the car factories, all the factories in the West would, would stop working very quickly because they don't have enough chips in stock. And also the Americans and the Europeans haven't built up their chip manufacturing industry to the degree that they could substitute for lost Taiwanese chips. 
But so we think we, we are looking at something along the economic blockade, uh, more likely a military invasion. But I mean, that's from our point of view. But Stuart, one of the things that we also talk about is the fact that China might be uh, encouraged to make a move on Taiwan to distract the people away from economic woes. And I suppose my question to you is, having spoken earlier this year about the issues around China's economy, has the summer been kind or, or harsh for the economic prospects of China? Well, the summer has really, I think, proved our point or the point that we were making early in the year in the January-February period when we were saying that in all likelihood the Chinese economy would shrink this year, which of course on our view would be the second out of three years in which it had shrunk because we see 2020 as a down year as well, even if though the official data claims that China grew even at the height of the pandemic. And I think the summer months have gone some way to proving our point. I mean, whether the official statistics bear that out or not, certainly the microeconomic statistics are very supportive of our view. So in short, what we've seen is uh, a continuation of the deterioration in the property market, which seems to be spreading. And obviously, in the summer months, what we've seen is uh, a mortgage boycott and the where is my condo campaign starting to materialize. So just for those listeners not familiar with the property development market in China, people pay for their apartments in advance off plan when they're unbuilt. And so a buyer can end up servicing a mortgage for the best part of a year or so before the condo is actually delivered. Now, obviously, as the property companies have struggled, so those delivery times have been pushed out. And, you know, some people have been waiting for two or three years now for their apartments to be delivered. Uh, And so the mortgage boycott is a big issue for the banks and the developers, uh, because it shows that their customers are are losing faith in, in their ability to deliver their product. The Spanner in the works, though, really, in the last uh, four or five weeks has come from the drought in China. We in the West are racked by our own cost of living crisis induced by furlough schemes or paying people to stay at home and do nothing for two years and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which obviously has forced up gas prices and and, and food prices as a consequence of that supply shock. China had looked like it was going to be escaping relatively lightly on the cost of living crisis, at least uh, using numbers that are available. But the drought is coming home now. So just for background here, you know, hydroelectricity accounts for just under 20% of China's total electricity output. And what China is witnessing in terms of of drought is really unprecedented in terms of uh, lack of rain, but also temperatures that are being records that are being broken pretty much on a daily basis. And so uh, what you're starting to see is that lack of electricity feed through into industrial shutdowns, air conditioning uh, limitations, electric car charging becoming problematic. And so this is yet another hit to the economy in the run-up to November. If I could just say, it's more than a hit to the economy. It's also a hit politically uh, internally as well, because it's awful to think, but but it's sort of slightly ironic that at the time that they need electricity to be able to power through their aircon and 
get the factories sort of running as well. At the time that they've lost the electricity because the, obviously with such a reliance on hydroelectricity and Sichuan, you know, one of the most important provinces in the in the country, that's seventy five or eighty percent reliant on hydroelectric power. There's been a lot of unrest at the uh, business level about the inability for the, the Chinese state to provide the electricity needed to keep the factories running. But surely, when you've got such heat waves crashing across the southwest, especially, people aren't going to be happy living in sort of high rise buildings. And they might be exposed to other properties as well, which they just haven't got their hands on and not being able to enjoy the summer because everything's so hot and they haven't got any aircon. It is not a recipe for uh, a happy population, surely. It certainly isn't. I mean, Sichuan, you're absolutely right, is very dependent on hydropower, as it is Yunnan, actually. Sichuan's not such an important industrial province, but what used to happen was it was a big exporter of hydroelectricity to industrial provinces. Obviously, that's simply not going to happen now. Um, and so, yeah, no, this is disastrous from a, a political point of view, because, you know, in our view, the economy was shrinking anyway, um, and the drought is just going to make it much, much worse. I mean, the, the irony that won't be lost on people is, of course, that the Chinese have been hoovering up uh, Russian gas at a discount, and that was meant to be their energy boon, as it were. But now it turns out that they too are suffering from electricity shortages. So the summer seems to, from an economic perspective, be turning into something of a, a disaster. Um, and I think you're going to start seeing this manifest itself in pressure on the exchange rate, you're already seeing uh, foreign capital starting to leave China. And so although you know people have been talking very much about the geopolitical reasons why investors uh, should be cautious on China, actually the economic fundamentals do not justify necessarily uh, an optimistic outlook for China either. Um, and I think that in a way is far more important as far as asset allocators are concerned. And we're seeing that sort of money leave over the summer months and volumes drying up. What kind of money is leaving? Are there any specific buckets of money that are leaving or is it just a general outflow? So what I'm talking about here is uh, f foreign portfolio money that had been invested in in government bonds and equities in, in China. Right. So from a general point of view. Well, interestingly enough, it'd be useful to work out from that point of view what's going to happen to Chinese foreign relations because of this drought. Uh, and for, for those who have sort of listened to us before, China's got more border disputes than any other country. Well, it's got more borders than anyone else, I suppose, to begin with. But it has got massive border disputes. And, and many of those can be attributed to disputes uh, over water. And for example, the Indian Himalaya issue, there's a lot of people that would suggest that that is uh, mainly uh, driven by worries about water controlling the watershed there. Interestingly enough, recently, Singapore and Malaysia have signed up to electricity supply from Laos, which obviously gets a lot of its money from its foreign earnings from exporting electricity from the Mekong River. Now, the problem is, is that the Mekong is in effect controlled by China, who have got 11 upstream dams on the Mekong, and as they showed in 2019, can turn the water off the downstream countries, which include obviously Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, etc. And that will cause a problem for any countries that are tied up to Laos's electricity exports, which now includes Singapore and Malaysia. If China decides that it wants to keep the water for itself, that doesn't even include the impact of the, of the drought on the level of the Mekong in the first place. So what do Singapore and Malaysia think of China if China starts to negatively impact their electricity supply, let alone the riparian countries, as I mentioned, Cambodia, Laos, etc.? 
who uh, will suffer specifically from any attempt by China to, to keep hold of their water. And that's just one thing that springs to mind as a potential political result of, of this drought. So Sam, you're quite right there in talking about the potential for water wars and the conflict that drought can bring about in, in, in Asia, uh, particularly given China's uh, land borders. I, I did want to ask you, though, whether the summer has made clearer the degree to which China has been or has not been aiding and abetting Russia in its war in Ukraine. Do we have any greater degree of clarity on that? And as a consequence, do we have a better idea of where we might be with regards to the possibility of sanctions being imposed on on China? Well, there has been some movement over the summer. Um, It's it's very clear that China is supporting Russia in this. Uh, There has been no division between uh, Xi Jinping and Putin, as in uh, a wedge being driven in between them uh, by anyone, either domestically or or, or by the West. Uh, And there's been a lot of reaffirmation, especially by the Chinese, that Russia is is a friend. But that said, China is still very worried about the concept of sanctions, secondary sanctions being put on Chinese entities. And so there has been a further move by many Chinese companies to distance themselves from Russian entities. But that does not stop trade. And and there is uh, quite a lot of uh, of movement in goods, especially oil and gas uh, into China, as you know uh, better than I do. But one of the interesting things is that China does appear to be taking a bit more of a risk in terms of helping Russia to get over the sanctions. Um, And one of them was this really bizarre thing that emerged recently, where uh, Lloyds of London, the the shipping uh, insurance group, uh, basically started tracking large numbers of ships doing crude oil exchanges in the North Atlantic, about 900 miles west of Portugal. And further uh, investigation revealed that it was Russian oil tankers going out into the middle of the sea, meeting other uh, empty um, oil tankers registered in Dalian in China and doing the transfer there. And obviously that that could be a bit of an issue in terms of sanctions, busting, etc. So it does look like uh, China is, is taking more of a, a proactive role in trying to support Russia, but nothing is majorly emerging yet. But uh, behind the scenes, there's lots of activities, we're sure. Uh, Sam, that's very interesting. Um, and, and, and thank you very much. Next week, um, I think I'm right in saying, Sam, we will be interviewing Vince Cable, the author of The Chinese Conundrum, amongst other things. Of course, he was uh, in the coalition government um, and is a former leader or deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats? Uh, Both, I think. But he was also someone that um, has spent a lot of time recently talking about China and Western relations. And it's going to be interesting to discuss with him what he thinks the impact of of China on Western liberalism is, because he is without doubt one of the staunch members of the the liberal society in, in the UK. And how has China and its impact made things easier or more difficult for the Liberals in Europe and the West. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you very much. Great. I'll see you next week. And please remember to like and share and uh, give us any feedback. It's always good to have conversations as we're increasingly doing after these podcasts. Not everyone agrees with us, which is great because it's better to have a conversation. And if you don't, or if you do, please let us know in the comments or get in touch with us directly. And we'll be back next week with Mr. Cable. Or Sir Vince, I should say.